0: We got this microphone thing figured out. Thank you, Wayne. Our scripture in today will be the 12th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 12. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 12, starting in verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is your midst, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Thank you.
1: Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. Well, you did it again. That thing that you had promised God that you would never do again. That thing you promised your spouse was something of the past. That thing that you convinced yourself no longer had a hold on you. Now you feel like God's against you. You feel like everyone at church knows and is condemning you. You feel that there is no way you can go to your pastor. After all, how in the world could he understand? You feel estranged from your family and your friends. You've convinced yourself that God no longer wants anything to do with you. The union with Christ you experienced when you became a Christian is broken. It feels like a distant memory. The sweet fellowship with God's people has become sour. And maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. And you don't think God could ever accept you because of your past. And so you've just given up. Is there any hope? Is this really what God is like? He would just abandon us? Am I just doomed to suffer and experience perpetual separation? If you feel this way this morning, you're not alone. Not only is it almost certain that someone else is feeling the same way, but even some of the most respected people in Scripture Messed up big time and felt the exact same way you do. King David, after committing adultery that led to pregnancy, then murdered that woman's husband, who happened to be one of his best soldiers, because that husband refused to help David cover up what he had done. He wrote this song to God in Psalm chapter 51. Said, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do a good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Did you catch that? He said, Return to me the joy of your salvation. Which implies that the joy of his salvation was far from him at that moment. He was in a tough spot. Now, turning back to Genesis chapter 13, can you imagine how Abraham felt? As we saw last week, God had given him a direct command to leave his family, his father's house, and to go to the land that God would show him in chapter 12. And then he would receive land, a seed, and a blessing. And he would be a blessing to all nations. Then right off the bat, as soon as God gives that command, what does Abraham do? He does not completely leave his family. He takes his nephew Lot with him most likely because he thought maybe God would provide an heir through Lot's family. After all, his own wife could not have children. He didn't trust the promise to bring an offspring. And then entering the land that God had promised him, when trouble hit, he abandoned the promised land and went to Egypt, not believing that God could take care of him even through a famine. Then, in Egypt... He willingly lied about his marriage to his wife and threw her into the arms of another man to save his own skin. Because of his lies, Pharaoh and his household suffered plagues. Abraham brought a curse to the surrounding nations, not a blessing like he was supposed to. Now he had been sent home by the Pharaoh. Can you imagine the conversations he had with himself on his way back to the promised land? How could God possibly accept him anymore? He had in only a brief time disobeyed and rejected all that the Lord had commanded and all that the God had promised. I imagine that the joy he first felt when God called him, when he called him from earth, the pleasure he had received from hearing God's promises was all but a distant memory. Surely it was all over. Surely God could no longer use him. Surely there was no longer any hope. Then we come to chapter 13. Maybe you feel this way, and you want to know, is there any way that we can return to blessing? Is there a possibility to return back to blessing? Is there any hope at all for me? Well, let's look at Abraham and the decisions he makes and the way God works in his life here in chapter 13 before we jump into the passage Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we often feel a lot like Abraham must have felt. We often feel the way David felt. That the joy of our salvation is far from us. For we thought that our salvation was supposed to bring us immeasurable joy. And Lord, as we listened to maybe Christian radio, it seemed that that's what was supposed to happen, that, that if we trust you, everything is just roses and fairies. But God, we found out quickly that that's not the case. I pray, Lord, if any of us are struggling through these issues, are struggling and feel distant from you and feel like, They have run away from your blessing. God, I pray that they would see a pathway back and not just see a pathway as if it was some sort of steps in a system, Lord, but they would see you. That ultimately, Lord, you would take the front seat even though we look today at our own experience and our own responses to you lord may we never forget that you are the centerpiece it is your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness to us that is the center of all this story praise in your name amen so beginning in chapter 13 abraham has just been sent out from egypt the pharaoh said get out of here you're a nuisance to us you're causing us problems, get out. And so he heads back to the land that God had promised him. We'll see in these first couple of verses, Well, let's, let's begin here. Let's, let's, let's read these first four verses to start. It says, so Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abraham was, was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, if you remember that from chapter 12, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Notice the first thing he does as he As as Abram pursues this path of returning to blessing, he begins with repentance and submission. He had been running away from the place where God had blessed him, he had been running away from the land that God had promised him. And he goes back to the altar that he had made between Bethel and Ai. He goes back and calls on the name of the Lord. Can you imagine that prayer? The text doesn't tell us anything about what he prayed to God at that moment. But I imagine it wasn't too awful different than David's in Psalm 51. I imagine it wasn't too different. God, I'm, I'm broken. I failed you. I haven't trusted a thing that you promised me, I haven't obeyed a single word of your command. Here I am. This is all I have. Even though he has all this wealth and all these riches, as he tells us, he comes back to the Lord. He returns to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. Returning to blessing begins with repentance and submission. There can be no return to blessing unless we repent and submit to the Lord. First of all, we need to clarify: blessing is not material blessing but rather it's a confidence and assurance of your salvation. Blessing is resting in the faithfulness of God. Blessing is being used by God to bring him glory. Notice the first step Abraham takes is to recognize that he is strayed away and returned to his heavenly father. If You're struggling today to find peace, to find rest, to find assurance. first thing to do is to stop running away. Return turn back to God. Return to fellowship with God's people. Submit to God's faithfulness. Trust Him once again. You cannot his, experience His grace if you do not trust His grace. The opposite of faithfulness is rejection. Now imagine I told my wife, as I'm sure some of us have told our spouses before in a moment of of anger but imagine you told your spouse I don't trust you anymore how deeply do you think that burns maybe you've been the one that that's been told to I just don't trust you anymore how deeply does that burn now imagine the same thing, and that's when we run from God, when we are running away from the blessings of God, that is what we are telling him. That's what Abraham was telling God. I don't trust you anymore. You promised me land, seed, and a blessing. I don't think you can do it. I don't trust you. We must trust him the opposite of faithfulness is rejection and no longer trusting him. So we must return. If we want to return to faithfulness, we need to start by trusting him. We'll see this fleshed out later in Abraham's life. But for, for now, let's just marinate on that. To repent then is to turn around from our sinful direction to run back to God. When we run back to him, we must come to him in humility. Humility. Humility is saying, I can't do this on my own and I need him to do it all for me. Not just, I need God to finish what I, couldn't, what I couldn't finish, but I can't do any of it and I need him to take care of all of it. We don't return to God with a list of conditions for our return. You know, God, if I, you've ever seen this in a movie, right? You know, God, if you save me from drowning in this car wreck that was caused because I was drunk driving, if you do this, then I'll go. I'll come back to you. You know, God, if you'll fix this situation in my life, then I'll come back. If you do this for me, then I'll come back. Or I'll come back to you, but don't expect too much out of me, or whatever the case may be. If we place conditions, when we come, we don't return to God with a list of conditions for our return, but rather we come to him with a blank page. The Latin, the tabula rasa, a blank tablet, a blank page willing to follow him at any cost. We say, God, here's the blank check of my life. Do with it what you will. Write it out for however much it costs. Even if it means my own life. Even if it means everything I treasure, take it. We return to him with a blank page, willing to follow him at any cost. But then notice what happens in Abraham's life. As the, as the story continues, look at verse 5. It says then, and then Lot, who went with him, uh, and Lot, who went with, with Abram, excuse me, verse 5, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were great, that, uh, were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. What happens immediately after Abram submits to the Lord? Strife. Now, if that was us, we'd say, God, why did I come back to you in the first place? This is a waste of my time. I went here, I, I, I went back to church, and I submitted, and I repented, and, and then, what, what are you doing to me? Right? Isn't that how we often react? But it seems to be the case, at least as it is in the case of Abram, that returning to blessing brings conflict. Returning to blessing, blessing oftentimes brings conflict. The conflict should not cause us to give up. Rather, the conflict should encourage us to press on. Strife arose between Abram and Lot. Their herdsmen could not dwell together. Their, the flocks were too big. There wasn't enough room for them, for them to be able to feed their flocks and make sure they kept them organized. And it caused them to fight with one another. Right? They didn't have uh, 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 good fences put up to keep everybody away from each other and keep everybody separated. There wasn't enough land to support it. They couldn't do it. And so strife arose. Our tendency is to avoid conflict, but often, the way to return to blessing brings conflict. That may seem counterintuitive. But it seems true, at least in my own life. People may mock you or ridicule you. People may express their disagreement with your life decisions. People will misunderstand what you are doing. How could you possibly do that? That's weird. Go to church? Why do that? I thought we were going to go boating this week. What happened? Well, maybe you're just, you're just a weirdo now, right? Problems will arise, maybe. You choose to return back to God, and life suddenly gets busy, or it gets hard. You choose to return back to God, uh, suddenly suddenly it becomes difficult to pay your bills. Suddenly you start getting sick, or, or in a church, conflicts and fights take place, or people begin to leave. People begin to criticize. The way back to blessing, or in God restoring His glory in your life, we may call it that or in the life of a church is not by avoiding the conflict, but rather going through the conflict. The way back to blessing is through the conflict, not around the conflict. We need to realize what's taking place. When we as an individual run from God or when a church stops being obedient to God's word, what's taking place is Satan begins to get a foothold into your life or into the life of that church. To return to God means that you are driving out the enemy. And you are driving out that great deceiver. He doesn't give up easily. He's not like, oh, oh, you want to be out of here? Okay, guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> Pardon me. I was, I was just sitting here for a second. It was comfortable. The air conditioning was on. I'll, I'll head out. That's good. No, he doesn't work like that. It'd be nice if it was that way, but he doesn't work like that, right? He doesn't give up easily. God Now, we have to remember, God is far more powerful than he is. But he is far more crafty than we are. If his lies cannot stop us from pursuing the Lord, which is what happens when we are running away from him, we're believing his lies. If if his lies can't stop us from pursuing the Lord, then he will let the lies of others try to stop us as well. Or he will attack with circumstances that causes us that cause us to once again believe the lie that God does not really love us. When the conflict takes place, we say, God, you weren't really in this. Or maybe I was just wrong about all this stuff. Then we believe we begin to believe the lie that God at the end of the day does not really have my best interest at heart. Same exact lie that was told to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Rather than avoid the conflict, the only way to return to blessing is to run through it, trusting God with the results. But then notice the third thing that happens here in the text, in verses eight through eighteen, it says this. And Abram said to Lot, "Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen." He, he doesn't necessarily avoid the strife, but he tries to find a way for there to be peace. "'For we are kinsmen. "'Is not the whole whole land before you? "'Separate yourself from me. "'If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. "'Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left.' "'And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley "'was well watered everywhere, and like the garden of the Lord, "'like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. "'This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. "'So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, "'and Lot journeyed east.' Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, "After After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you will see. I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Third thing we see here that Abram has to deal with is that returning to blessing often requires that idols must be crushed. Notice what takes place here. Abram, why did Abram bring Lot in the first place? Very likely it is because he believed that Lot was going to be the way that God was going to produce the, the offspring for, for him. That God wasn't going to be able to do it through him and his wife, so Lot was the one that was going to take care of it. He was trusting Lot more than he was trusting God. And here God brings a a strife amidst them that causes a dividing point. You go one way, I'll go the other way. Now look at this gracious offer that Abraham gives him. Remember, God has already promised him Canaan. He's already promised him the land of Canaan. And if you're reading this, you'd probably be like, Whoa, Abraham, what are you doing right here? This seems like a bad idea. He gives him a pretty open offer. He says, Are you going to go east or are you going to go west? Which way do you want to go? Whatever way, you pick. Right, now, now the land blessing, God's promise of land to Abraham is now in the hands of Lot. That's a scary thing, at least for the reader, not for the Lord. Abraham graciously offers the land to Lot. And again, it's possible, even this is still part of his, his uh, difficulty in trusting the Lord. He's still trying to offer him the inheritance. You take the land. God's going to do this all through you, not through me. So you go ahead and take the land if you want it. But God sovereignly keeps Lot from choosing the land. And we also see there's hints that Lot's decision was a bad one, right? He looks up and he sees, he sees the Jordan Valley. This is great. in Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw now pause there for a second go back to the garden of Eden God saw that it was good God created all things saw that they were good he created things to be good for mankind Eve saw that the tree that she was told not to eat was good for food and here we have Lot doing the same thing he lifts up his eyes and he sees what does he see? He sees the Jordan Valley that was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. The very place that mankind had been excommunicated from. He says, that's the place I want to go. I want to go to the place that we're not allowed to go back to. This place is like the garden of the Lord. It's like the land of Egypt. Right? The place that Abraham had just come back from because he was disobedient to the Lord for going to Egypt in the first place. Everything Lot is doing just seems like a bad idea. And then it even goes forward It says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, the direction he's going, this is where God's going to do some business. Right? Direction, in other words, this is really God saying like, or for the reader... The assumption is that you've read this all before and you're reading it again. And you go, yeah, I know it's going to happen there. Right? Now, it's going to be a while before we get there. That's about chapters 19 and 20 area. right? We'll get there, but at this point, there's already hints. God's going to do some business with Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's the direction that Lot chooses to go. If that wasn't enough, it says Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed. What direction? East. Now, all through Genesis so far, east is the bad direction. You don't go east, right? East is away from the blessing of the Lord. East is away from where God's promised land is. And that's the direction Lot chooses to go. But think of this then from Abram's perspective or from God's perspective. Look, so Abram, so Lot has They separated from each other And then Abram goes and settles in the land of Canaan While Lot settled among the cities of the valley And moved his tent as far as Sodom Now the men of Sodom were wicked Great sinners against the Lord Again, further evidence that Lot's decision Was not a great one But now here they are Now Abraham And Lot have separated What's, what's taking place here? What's really taking place here? We saw that Abraham had an idolatry in his heart. He was trusting Lot more than he was trusting the Lord. And so what does God do? He makes an opportunity for Lot to be separated from Abraham. Now Abraham has no way that he can trust Lot anymore. Finally, he has obeyed the command to leave his father and mother. To leave his, fa- to leave his relatives. He's finally obeying that command. God crushes this idol in Abraham's life in order to draw him to trust him more. It is only after this separation that we find what happens next. Then now, the Lord finally speaks. All through this chapter, Abraham has been moving back to blessing. He's been repenting and submitting. He's gone through strife. He's going through conflict, and now he's crushing idols. And now, the Lord speaks. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Now look how God says this. Lift up your eyes and look. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was a good place to live. God says, lift up your eyes and look that direction. He knew what was best for him. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, westward. From all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Forever. And he continues to reiterate the blessing. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Now remember, Abraham's wife is still barren. Abraham still doesn't have any kids. And God is telling him, you're going to have so many kids, you won't even be able to number them. There's going to be so many people in your family, there's going to be like the dust of the earth. And if you, if you could even possibly number the dust of the earth, that's how many kids you're going to have. What? What? Could you imagine Abraham at this point? We already saw he's over 75 years old. He's not a spring chicken anymore. And God's still giving him this promise? Imagine it was still hard for him to believe this. In fact, we will find out that that's exactly the case, that he still has trouble believing this as we go through his life. But here God gives this promise to him again, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring could also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, where it's at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. We saw last week that this is now the, most, the southernmost part of the land of Canaan. He has built altars in the northern part, in the center, and in the, in the southern part. He is claiming the entire land of Canaan. For the Lord. He built an altar to the Lord. Now that Abraham, now that Abraham has crushed this idol of family, now Abraham is able to be obedient to the original command. And the promise to receive all the land and offspring is reinforced by the Lord. This brings renewed worship. See, we sometimes stop early. We stop at the conflict, or we stop at the idol crushing. We don't want to get rid of that thing. And we never get to the other side where God's able to renew his promises. Abraham didn't believe that God could provide an offering, offspring through his barren wife. So he brought Lot instead of obeying God completely. The only way God could restore Abram was to crush the idol of dependence on Lot to accomplish God's promise. The same is true for us. Often the reason we strayed from God in the first place is because we trusted something or someone else for security and blessing rather than God and his word. We gave our lives to a job so we could have financial security rather than trusting God to provide our needs. We trusted a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or a child or a grandchild to bring us peace and satisfaction rather than trusting the Lord to provide those things. We trusted athletics to give us what we needed to fill that void in our life So we allowed participation in sports or entertainment through sports to overtake our lives rather than letting God and His glory bring us fulfillment and satisfaction. Our hearts are idol factories. We will find anything to worship as long as it's not the Lord. But whatever in our life receives ultimate worth is an idol. You may say, well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't worship little golden images or little metal images or little wooden images. I don't, I don't want to sit in there like at my house. There's not like a shrine at my house where I've got candles lit and I'm bowing down to idols. I'm not doing that. I'm not an idolater. You're wrong. Our hearts are idol factories. Idols are anything that takes the place of God in our life that we give ultimacy to in our life. Abraham placed ultimate worth in Lot. In freedom from conflict, whether famine or threats from Egyptian rulers, so he strayed from the blessing of God. The reason we strayed from God in the first place is because of the idols in our heart. So if we're to return to blessing, we must crush those idols, whatever they are. Now that doesn't mean you need to kill your parents or kill your grandchildren. It's not what it's talking about here. But well, we do need to remove them from the throne of our heart and allow God to take his rightful place. That may mean taking one less shift so you can worship with God's people. It may mean letting go of that tithe check and trust that God will take care of your needs. It may mean playing one less sport or watching one less game so that you can make time to serve the Lord. It may mean giving up your leisure time or a hobby that you can make time to be at church or plowing through the conflict of rounding up your visiting family so you can bring them with you to congregational worship now we come to where we see Abraham continuing this, this process forward returning to blessing requires trusting God not human means it means trusting God not human means Chapter 14 begins with a mass of armies. There's there's two major groups of armies, and they start to have a clash. It's kings from one area go against kings of another area. And in the middle of this clash, that's all taking place outside of the land of Canaan, mind you. This is all taking place kind of outside that area. And, and, And in the process of this battle, Sodom is taken. Sodom and Gomorrah are both taken, these evil cities where Lot happens to live. And Lot is taken captive. Now Abraham has a decision to make. Does he let his nephew suffer at the hands of being a prisoner of war? Or does he go and get him? Now the text doesn't tell us that Abraham asked God what he should do, first of all. But we do get indications that it was the Lord helping him along after he meets up with Melchizedek. When he goes into battle here... Um, uh, I'm trying to find it here, I apologize. Uh, verse 12 they took they took Lot the son of Abraham Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and all his possessions and went their way. Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Es uh or Esh- Eshkol, anyway, whatever his name is, and of Aner. they were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's the outer edges of, of the land of Canaan, by the way. He, t- he chases them all the way to the edge of the land of Canaan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and all the women and the people now if you were to go back ahead and look at the, these nations that came about the nation that won is a nation that had giants among them right? very very tall, very strong very powerful military people they were a part of their army and they were the winners they took Lot as spoil Abraham takes 318 people and defeats them well I would say that's a pretty big deal Right? What, is, what is God doing? How is, what is God doing for Abraham? Well, now Abraham's going to have a reputation. He's got a good military force. We don't want to mess with him. Right? Someone's taking care of him. In fact, that's exactly what, the king, what king, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, tells them. He says, God is with you. And God took care of this for you. So God... Uh, establishes an impressive reputation for Abraham. As he returns to blessing, God establishes a reputation for Abraham. God, or Abraham trusts God with his own reputation. And thus we must trust him with our reputation as well. Returning to blessing in this point, it requires trusting God, not human means. And here, Abraham trusts God with his reputation and God establishes an impressive reputation for Abraham. Trusting God is also uh, to, is to fill his promises in his way and not our way. Now look at what happens here. Verse 17. After his return from the from the feet of Kediloamar, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet uh, him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek is a king priest. And he blessed him and said... Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who is with me, who went with me. Let Anair, Escoal, uh, and Mamre take their share. Abram is given two people that come to honor him. One says, Man Abraham, God is with you. God's taking care of this. Here's bread and wine. I'm going to honor you with this. And, and Abraham accepts that. We can go a lot more, into a lot more detail about Melchizedek and him being a king priest. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a, is, a, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is a really important figure. We really don't have time to delve into all that's going on with Melchizedek. If we go through Hebrews someday, then we can maybe delve into this a little bit more. But for this sake, let's see this. Now Melchizedek, this king priest Brings out this way to honor Abraham and, and, and praises God for him And Abraham responds by accepting that praise to the Lord Not for himself, but praising, well, he, accepting his, his offering And gives him a tenth of everything that he has He blesses him by saying, alright, here's a gift to you as well But then the king of Sodom makes a proposal Alright, give me all your people And I'll give you anything you want All of my stuff. You can have any of it. That might be a pretty tempting offer. Just give me your people, and you can have all of my land. You can have all of my possessions. But remember, Sodom is outside the land of Canaan, it's outside the land of promise. The king of Sodom saw a way for himself to benefit from Abraham. He would offer Abraham land, but not the land that was promised to him by the Lord king of, of sodom essentially offers a shortcut to abraham a human means of receiving the blessing of god abraham may have seen this offer and said oh this would be over isn't it i can get this land right here it's being offered to me all i gotta do is give them these people and i get this land great i mean i know it's not the land right but but hey this is pretty good this is a land nonetheless it's like the garden of god as lot said before It's a great place. Why not? But Abraham does the right thing. And instead of trusting the king of Sodom, he rejects the king of Sodom's offer and chooses rather to trust God's plan. He tells the king of Sodom, I don't want anything you have. I don't want a sandal strap from you. I want to get it from God the way God wanted to give it to me. How does this apply to our own life? We excel at trying to find signs under every rock or trying to contrive and concoct plans that we think will bring what we want from the Lord. The lottery is an excellent example of this, right? The lottery promises that you will get rich quickly. You may think in your mind, well, that must be how God is is gonna provide for me financially. And if I don't play the lottery, how would I know, right? Maybe that's the way God's gonna do this. Maybe that's how I'm gonna get rich. Maybe that's how my needs are gonna get taken care of by winning the lottery. and Instead of actually trusting the Lord for your provision, you spend hundreds and thousands of dollars chasing your own contrived method of pursuing financial security. The lottery promises salvation and prosperity, but it will only lead to sin and poverty. Someone shows you a way to cheat and steal your way to the top of the corporate ladder. You follow because you think, Perhaps this is how God wanted me to achieve this, right? I can I can be the CEO if I do it this way. Maybe that's how God wanted this to happen. Maybe that's what God had planned for me the whole time. Or maybe in a church setting, we conclude that having a young pastor or a certain type of music or screens and projectors or more programs or whatever else, that those things will guarantee God's blessing. If we just get that one thing, that's gonna settle all the issues and God's gonna take care of it all. He's gonna bless us. All we need is whatever. The problem is that we often put our trust in human means rather than patiently waiting And trusting in God Himself. In our lives and in our churches, the first question we ask instead of the right question, the first question we ask is what do we want? What will make us happy? Rather, or how can we manipulate God to meet our ends? Rather, we should ask the question instead what does God want? How does God want to restore His glory in our church? Or in my life. We often choose what we think is the quick and easy route to the blessings that we want. Rather, like Abraham, we must be patient and wait for the blessing of the Lord. Or wait for the blessing that he wants to give to us. If we want to see God restore his glory amongst us, we must turn to scripture and turn to prayer and patiently trust God. There's another place in Scripture that deals with the same issue, about returning to blessing. Jesus tells a story about two brothers. One brother comes to his dad and says, "You know what, Dad? I wish you were dead. All these rules you got on me, I don't want them anymore. Just give me my inheritance, and I'm out of here." His dad, lovingly and graciously gives it to him, he says, "Go ahead." And he runs away from his father spends every single penny on prostitutes and on drinking and on parties. He's got a lot of friends while he has money, but soon the money runs out and he has nothing. One day he finds himself feeding slop to pigs and looks down in the slop and says, I'm hungry, takes a bite. And in the middle of this, he comes back to his senses. He says, wait a minute. My dad has servants that get better food than this. Why don't I just go back to my dad and go and ask him to be a servant again? So he makes this plan. This contrived method. He said, I know how I'm going to get this. I know how I'm going to get what I need. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to go back to the Lord. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Just let me be a servant. Remember what happens? The dad acts completely inappropriately for a man of his age, right? If you remember the clothing they would have wear, it would have been a long robe. He grabs the robe from behind, pulls it up. Now, can you imagine James running around like that? Right, James? Could you imagine James running around, pulling up, pulling his skirt up, and holding it between his legs, and then running down the, running down the sidewalk? Right? The father, with the son failed to realize is that his father was standing on the porch waiting for him. And he's, as soon as he saw him come down the hill, he grabbed, him, he grabbed up his garments, didn't care how inappropriate it was, didn't care what he looked like, and ran to his son. And before his son could even get his words out of his mouth, he says, My son is returned. Let's have a party. But this story is about two sons. The other son can't understand this, Dad. I obeyed all the rules. I did all of it. I'm sitting. Here. I have. I never left you. All right. This is the opposite reaction we could have. How come when I've been done all these things, when I've done this and I've done that and I've obeyed all your rules, how come I don't get a party? What well, both failed to realize. What both sons failed to realize is how gracious their father is and how faithful and loving their father is. That's the God that we serve, guys. The story Jesus paints is that whatever error you fall onto this, God is the same. He's a gracious, loving father. That when we run away from God, there is hope, it's not over. There's a path back. And he's waiting for us to return to him. He's just sitting there waiting. It's not over. He doesn't doesn't think that you can no longer be used anymore. He's just waiting. Patiently waiting. And that gives us good news. God is not done with you. And God is not done with our church. There's hope. There's grace. And there's restoration waiting for you. Because of how great He is. Maybe you here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior. You've never had the blessing of salvation. You've never had the joy of salvation to lose in the first place. Jesus Christ died for your sins. The Son of God took on humanity, lived and suffered lived in perfect obedience, suffered a death on a cross, and it didn't end there. He rose victoriously from the grave so that you might have life. If you need to submit yourself to salvation in Christ, not trusting some kind of works, not trusting some kind of system, just trusting the Lord for your salvation. Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Are you ready to trust Him? That's the initial blessing. It's the joy of salvation. Maybe you're here today and you've you've not felt that joy in salvation, maybe not for very long, maybe for a really long time. What are you waiting for? Turn and repent. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. You're going to run into strife, you're going to have to crush some idols. You're going to have to be patient and trust the Lord. But He's a great Father. He's a good Father standing and waiting for you. Let's pray and then we'll move into our time of Lord's Supper after our invitation. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, I can't think of a more fitting way to respond to this message than to partake in the Lord's Supper. I pray that you would Call us to repentance first. Lord, as we have this invitation, that this invitation would be an opportunity to get our hearts right with you, to return to you, whether in our seats or at these steps. Lord, that would be the first step in our process before we come before your table. Lord, you said there are people who have eaten unworthy and has eaten death to them. I pray, God, this moment of silence, this time of silence, of, of of music and silence and, and, and introspection would be a time where we run back to you. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to do this in your name.